Well, this morning we are um, continuing our Eastertide sermons, which are talking, we're exploring the implications of the resurrection. So we've mentioned before, resurrection is not just one day of the year, it is a whole season on the Christian calendar, and we're exploring implications of the resurrection, mostly in Paul's theology, because Paul has a resurrection-based theology. So almost everything he says about our salvation, the new creation, justification by faith alone, all of these things in his mind naturally flow out from a resurrection-based theology. That because of the resurrection, new creation, because of new creation, all of these things, da 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 So it's good for us as we explore this passage to know it's in the context of the resurrection that Paul is thinking and describing these these things. I also wanted to say one more thing before we read our passage in Romans chapter 8. I wanted to talk about just a moment. As As we read through this passage, I want you to be paying attention to these two things that guide us as we read almost all scripture. In fact, I would say all scripture that we read, especially in the New Testament, but it's also in the Old Testament, is the uh, indicative of grace and the imperative of obedience. So there are these indicatives and these imperatives. The indicatives is this is what God has done for you. That's the indicative. The imperative is, therefore, this is what you should do. And the reason why this is so important is because... um, these two things exist in all Christian churches, but if, if, if you don't understand it right, you can have it reversed. Whereas the imperative is on you to do this so that God will do this. And our theology is just the opposite. It is a grace-based theology. The centrality of grace informs everything we do and say as we approach the word of God and understand our life in God. God has done this by his gracious initiative Therefore, we behave and respond obediently out of gratitude and humble worship, not the other way around. And if you reverse that, you need to obey and you need to live a certain way so that God will do the X, Y, and Z for you, that, that, that just exhausts people and people often walk away from their faith. So if you've grown up in a legalistic church or you know people who have, often the minute they become adults, they're done with it. Because they say, I can't do this anymore. Because if it's up to me to earn God's love and acceptance and and forgiveness by how well I live, how how obedient I am, who can maintain that? And I would say they're right for walking away. And, And so theology and your approach to scripture is so crucial and vitally important because it really is just a switch. No, God in his gracious initiative, has done this for us. I had a conversation just this past week with somebody, and I said, "Um, how do you understand your salvation? And they said, well, it means that, you know, I don't live that old life anymore. And I said, so so what does it mean that Jesus has saved you? Well, it means that I don't don't smoke, drink, and curse. and, and, And I was trying to push this person to see if they could, in their description, say, this is what Jesus has done for me. And it didn't happen in the conversation. And I realized that, that this divides people, how they understand their faith, and it makes a big difference. If you've been around this kind of teaching for a long time, you, you, it's, it's just no big deal to you. Well, of course. 
God graciously in his initiating love has done X for us, therefore we do Y. But that is not, that is not so clear to many, many, many Christians. And so as we read through this passage, I want you to see that, the indicative of grace, the imperative of obedience. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And here's the key wrapping it all up, the bow on the whole thing. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for this, your holy word, this message of life in the spirit and its connection to the resurrection that the one that raised Jesus from the dead is also at work in our mortal bodies giving us life, eternal life, spiritual life, and life everlasting. Help us now to understand its power and glean the wisdom of this passage that we may leave this place transformed and changed by it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one theologian uh, said that uh, Romans, if Romans has rightly been called the cathedral of the Christian faith, Romans 8 is surely may be regarded as its most sacred shrine, its high altar of worship. This may be one of the most important chapters in all of the New Testament. And Romans 8 comes on the heels of Paul's struggle in Romans 7 to please God. How many of you remember that passage where Paul explores his own struggle to live faithfully before God? I'm going to read it right now where he says, the things I want to do, I don't end up doing? Listen to Romans 7.21. So I find then to be a law that when I would do right, evil lies close at hand. For though I delight in the law of God in my inner being, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, 
but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Uh, The struggle that Paul is describing is the tension between these two realities. The flesh, which is in Adam, and our inner being, our spiritual being, which is in Christ. Now you only have to ask yourself just for a moment, do I still struggle with sin? The answer is yes, and you know that there is a tension between these two realities. Every one of us continues to struggle with these two realities. The flesh warring against our inner being, which longs to do God's will, which longs to obey God, but struggles against the flesh's appetites and thoughts and lusts. And so there is a battle going on, and Paul names that battle. We want to do good, but we often end up doing the things we don't want to do, right? It's like, I I want to to love others, I want to... um, Uh, uh, be godly, I want to obey God's commands, and then sometimes, somehow, some way, something slips in and I end up doing something I regret or have to repent of and have to scratch my head in shame saying, how did that happen? You you all have had that experience before. How did that happen? How did I get so nasty with somebody so quickly? How did I respond with such anger so quickly? How did I say something so cruel? How did I neglect showing love you know, to, to maybe my wife or my children? Or, or you know, th- There's so many things. The list goes on and on. We want to do good, but we often end up doing the things we don't want to do. Our inner being wants to please God, but the power to do it is not in us, at least not in our flesh. But Romans 8 is so powerful because it comes in right at that moment right on the heels of what Paul has just said about that struggle between his inner being, the law of his mind and the law of his members, his body, and Romans 8 comes in and says, hey, 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 everything's gonna be okay because the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and is giving life to your mortal bodies. Yes, you're struggling. Yes, you struggle. Yes, you find yourself disappointed with your ability to walk faithfully before God, but don't worry. The the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is also at work in you, giving you life as well. It's this fantastic statement. And look at verses one and two. This 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 is the verdict. Therefore, there is now no, now therefore no condemnation for those who are, and here's the key, who are in Christ Jesus. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As much as we'd like to tell everyone that God's forgiving love extends to all humans regardless of their faith or their religion, this is, this is the, the sort of hook in the whole thing, is that there is no condemnation if you're in Christ. That key factor is the one thing that helps us sleep at night when we see ourselves failing to walk before God in faithfulness at times. We're in Christ. So right out of the gate, Paul says there's no condemnation because Paul, from the previous verse, is wrestling with this sense of condemnation, the sense of guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. 
And here it is again, in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. In Christ, the internal regulating power of sin, which Paul calls a law, is broken. So now Paul is not just talking about the law of Moses, he's he's using the word law freely here. He says there's like a law of, there's a law of sin and death at work in my members, there's a law of my mind. I mean, he's, he's getting real creative. He subverts the whole language of the law and sort of recycles it. So he launches off from just the law of Moses to talking about all these different laws at work in us. And in many ways, he's kind of like, evacuating the solitary power of the law of Moses by saying, there are all these different laws going on. There's a law of my mind, there's a law of my members, there's a law of my heart. And so he says, and now there's a new internal regulating power, which is essentially what he means when he says the law of my mind. An internal regulating power. There's a new internal regulating power which controls my behavior and my action, and it's the spirit Sin and death is replaced by life and peace. And what he's driving at as is um, when you were under the dominion of sin, what was dominating you inside was this law of sin and death, which was causing you to constantly do the things that displease God. But now there is something else which sets your values and affections on the things that God values which is righteousness and peace and life and holiness, and now there is a new internal regulating power, which means that sin and death doesn't reign in you anymore, but life and peace. That doesn't mean we don't ever sin anymore, but it means that our um, orientation, so to speak, you know, kind of like the magnetic force orienting us towards like true north is set on the right path. That's, you know, I'm I'm a hiker, so I've got these you know, these references to, I always bring two compasses. There's north, and then there's, most compasses have, what, what, what is actually north is a few degrees off, but we talk about true north, which is setting you on the right path. And so you always have to adjust 15 degrees on your compass and knowing that your compass says, you know, north is this way, but it's really actually this way, true north. And so the internal regulating power of the spirit in us sets us on the right course, enabling us to pursue life and peace instead of sin and death. And the key here is the spirit. And it's this life-giving power, which is the spirit of God, and it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if you just wrap your mind around that for a moment, the idea that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is also at work in you. That's pretty fantastic. That the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit is at work in you. And he says in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And so now there's this like subversive, subversion of language here. Not only are you not condemned, there's no condemnation for you, but guess who actually stands condemned? Sin itself. And Paul sort of personifies sin. It's like in Jesus' life and ministry and in his death and resurrection, sin was put on trial, sin was killed, sin was condemned. 
Sin is personified. And it's now sin who stands condemned, not us. So the sin, the power of sin in us that was at work in us, causing us to be enemies with God, well, the sin itself was judged in Jesus' body. And so there are two things here first I want us to see. Number one is the law, which was good, it was weakened by the flesh because the flesh didn't have the ability to to make the law life-giving. So the law was good, God's commands are good, right? The Ten Commandments and all the different ordinances of the law. And just so you know, when we talk about the law, on Sinai, when God gives Moses the law, he just gives him Ten Commandments. As the children of Israel start to live and disobey God, he gives a few more laws. And then they live and they violate more, you know, more of God's holy standards, and God gives a few more laws. And so the entire entirety of the law was not given all at once. It was given in bits and pieces. In fact, as the situation and scenario called for it, God gave more laws and more laws. And this is what, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is all about. That's the Pentateuch. We call that the law because through those five books, the law of God is revealed. And, and, and so it was meant to be a, a transcription of God's own values. So the law transcribes God's own moral character, what God thinks is right. But because of sin, because of the fall, the flesh is not able to let the law do what it was meant to do, which is produce life. The only way I can explain it is, um, well, maybe it's not the only way, but the way I want to explain it is I think of like a lottery winner. You know how people who, they say people who win the lottery, like like 90% of them go bankrupt within 10 years? Well, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that often people who play the lottery and, and subsequently people who win the lottery, they don't know anything about money. And so it's not in them. They don't, it's not that money is bad. Like a lot of good could be done with the money, but they don't understand the way money works. And so they buy a $10 million house and don't realize it takes $60,000 a year to maintain the house with taxes and landscaping and all of those different things. They just don't understand. And within five or 10 years, they're completely bankrupt. Right? They squandered all through bad decisions. So it's like they've been, giving, they've been given something good. It's not that money is evil in and of itself, but they themselves, because they don't know what to do with it, because it's not in them, because they haven't been trained, they haven't learned, they squander it and it becomes a big mess. In fact, often um, people's lives, you know, five or ten years down the road after winning the lottery, are worse than they were before. I mean, this is time and time again. I mean, documentaries have been made about this. The flesh, because its sinful desires, make the law an instrument of death by condemning itself. The flesh condemns itself because instead of obeying the law, it violates the law because of the sin that dwells inside of our flesh. And so the law becomes an instrument of death. It cannot produce life. Again, not that the law is bad, but the flesh is weak. This is what Paul is saying here. That's number one. Number two... Because Christ represented God's chosen elect people in his life and death, his defeat of sin in the flesh is our defeat of sin in the flesh. In the Greek, um, all throughout the book of Romans, is um, when it talks about what Jesus has done, the, there is, the, there is the, the Greek letters S-Y-N, S-Y-N, and in, and in English, you would translate it as the word like co. We are co-crucified. We are co-heirs, we are co-victors, 
We are co-raised with Jesus, right? And so this idea that we have joined Jesus, we've been united to Jesus, that the things that he has conquered, we have conquered just by our union with Jesus Christ through faith. So Jesus Christ is you know, stomping all over sin. He's defeating the power of sin. And all of those who have been called, chosen, and elect to, be, to have faith in him, essentially he's carrying with him. So his victories are our victories. His defeat over sin is our defeat over sin. Now, we didn't actually defeat sin, and you know that if you just think about yourself. But Christ did it for us, and what Christ does, we somehow mystically, powerfully, spiritually get in on. We get in on that action. Through union with Christ, we are united to, united to Christ by faith in Christ. And it seems simple, but it's actually quite profound. So then, he goes on to say, uh, well, let me back up. Anyone, just, just a summarizing statement to that, anyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ stands no longer condemned by reason of their union with him. Anyone who places their faith and trust in Christ is no longer condemned. And you might be asking, is, can it really be that simple? Is it just a matter of faith? Yeah, it's just a matter of faith. So it's not about performance. It's not about how good you are. And so if someone has, has ever asked you, um, you know, what does it mean that you stand right before God? How do you know you're made right with God? And you say, well, I just, I just try to be the best person I can possibly be. <clears throat> That's the wrong answer. <laughs> it's good that you're trying to be the best person you can possibly be, but that is not the answer from Scripture. The answer from Scripture is, I know I'm made right with God because I have trusted in Christ for my salvation. Because I know and believe that what he has accomplished, he accomplished for me and on behalf of me as a follower of Christ. And by faith, his victory over sin is my victory over sin. By faith, his righteousness is my righteousness. I mean, that's what the whole, that's what, that's what the whole text unpacks. You know, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, that, that's really what's going on all throughout Paul's theology, is we are somehow hidden with Christ, we are in Christ, gaining the victory over the very thing that was killing us and condemning us. And then Paul makes a statement. So, then the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this spirit, which Paul says in verse 11, as I mentioned before, is the same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead. And it's at work in us producing life and helping us live lives pleasing to God. Otherwise, after having been set free, we'd go right back to the things that God hates. So think about it this way, okay? God is not just declaring that we are holy and righteous, but he fills us with the power of his spirit to make us actually holy and righteous and sort of rehabilitating us. The spirit is in us at work rehabilitating us. Without that rehabilitating power, we are children of God in name only. But God really wants to transform our lives. In 1980, the American playwright Norman Mailer had a correspondence with a convicted criminal named uh, Jack Henry Abbott, who is in prison 
and serving a sentence for robbery, um, theft, fraud, and manslaughter. And Jack Henry Abbott wrote to Norman Mailer. Some of you have heard of Norman Mailer. And he started telling him the stories of how brutal it was in the American prison system. And he was such a good writer that Norman Mailer shared Jack Henry Abbott's letters with friends of his who were literary critics. And they were so astounded at how well he wrote that they helped publish his writings in a book called In the Belly of the Beast. You've probably heard of it. And in 1981, um, Norman Mailer lobbied for Jack Henry Abbott's release from prison, and he was paroled in June of that year. Six weeks later, Jack Henry Abbott walked into a Manhattan cafe and stabbed a uh, 22-year-old waiter to death for not letting him use the restroom, which was for employees only. He was freed from prison, but he was not freed from the wickedness of his own heart. There was no power at work inside of him making him a different person. And Mailer thought because he was a great writer that surely this, this meant that he was a different person. But the truth is, and they interviewed prison guards later on and said he was one of the most violent inmates they had ever seen. Just because he could write well, you know, didn't mean his heart had been changed. And so he'd been freed from prison, but he had not been freed from the power that was causing him to be such a rascal. And to be so evil. He was unchanged. And because he was unchanged, there was no power at work inside of him, he was bound to reoffend. Now, this is important for us because when we think about the fact that we've been freed from the power of sin and death because of Christ's work on the cross, God has also done something else by giving us the power of his spirit to actually change who we are. So we've been declared righteous, but God is at work in us through the power of the Spirit trying to actually make us righteous in our acts and thoughts and behaviors through the power of the Spirit. And theologians call this the double grace of justification and sanctification. We're made right with God, declared righteous, and then the Spirit works in us, making us actually righteous. Because when God says you are righteous because of your faith in Christ, it doesn't mean you're actually righteous. God has to do something to shore up that gap between the way he sees you on account of Christ and the way you actually are. And hopefully, in the power of the Spirit and through faithful, faithful obedience to God, over time, what we are in God's sight and what we are in our actual heart and behavior become closer and closer through the power of the Spirit. And so the power of the Spirit has sort of kind of like lassoed you and is pulling you closer to God inch by inch. Now, some people said, well, justification is a work of grace. Sanctification is something we do. That's not right either. Both justification and sanctification are both a work of God's grace, but on, it's, with sanctification, we participate. God invites us to participate. And here's the key. Life in the Spirit is not automatic. Life in the Spirit is not automatic. It requires participation by believers who have to set their mind on the things of the Spirit and actively oppose the flesh. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So it requires active participation by us. We have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And so if you have ever struggled with a debilitating sin, something that is really wicked and evil that you're probably too ashamed to ever share with anybody, you know that you do not just pray, Lord, take it from me, and you wake up the next morning and bingo. You're completely free of it. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You have to actively pursue the mind of God by walking in the Spirit, by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit and not the things of the flesh, which means it's hard work. But always with the knowledge that we are not trying to earn God's love, we've already received it, remember, in Jesus Christ. But there is a war that still rages in us. And this is sort of the whole point. That God has declared us righteous, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and at the same time, we have to actively resist the influence and power of the flesh, which, if we follow its lusts and appetites, will mean that we don't live lives pleasing to God. My son is my son. I love my son. My daughter, all my daughters, I love my daughters, but they can do things that displease me. It doesn't mean they stop being my children, but they can do things that make me unhappy as their father. And it's the same way with God. It requires active participation by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And this is where the indicative of grace and the imperative of obedience comes back into view. Because we've been saved by God's free grace in Christ, we pursue godliness and set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Our life in Christ comes with imperatives. There are things we have to do, not to become saved, but because we're saved. Our life in God comes with imperatives. There are things God wants us to do and obey, not to earn his love, but because we're loved. And that little kind of fine nuance is the key to everything. We are not earning God's love. Our walk with God is not based on how well we obey. And at the same time, if we live heedlessly in a way that is not mindful of the very character and nature of God and the commands of God, we will find ourselves with ruined lives. Yes, we, even as Christians, we can do things that ruin our lives. You know, it's like the illustration, you know, if, if you've got a drinking problem and you throw back a case of beer and jump in your car and drive 110 miles down the road and wrap your car around a telephone pole and have your legs amputated, God will still love you, but your legs won't grow back. There are consequences, and so God is warning us against the life that brings death and destruction, because we're his children. And so verse 6 says, to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. We have to take up our cross daily, Jesus says. We have to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It is not just a free hall pass where we get to do anything we want and 
think anything we want and be any way we want. We have to mortify and crucify the deeds of the flesh by actively every single day taking up our cross and denying the lusts of the flesh and denying ourselves and our appetites. It is a daily battle, and some days you win, and some days you lose. Right? Amen? Yeah, some days you win, some days you lose, but we do it all with the confidence that we're not condemned. And so we're in this daily struggle, this daily fight against the power of the flesh through the power of the spirit. And over time, here's the amazing thing about warring against the flesh. The more you do it, the easier it gets. The more you pursue godliness, the more you pursue righteous living, the more you set your mind on the things of the spirit, the less you set your mind on the things of the flesh. The more you pursue God's word and his holy statutes, the less you are prone to be given to um, unfaithfulness and wicked ways. And so in some ways, we are, we are capturing a habit of righteous living. The more you do it, the easier it gets. I, I, I've heard um, scientists, psychologists, and theologians talk about neuropathways. Uh, again, to a hiking metaphor, um, in, in the wilderness... Uh, hiking trails are often only maybe 12 inches wide, and there is, you know, grass and bushes and, you know, um, like, like, like rough terrain all around, but where, because people are hiking up and down on paths, that path is just dirt because it's worn, and it's there, and you can see it. Um, but if people stopped hiking on those trails, over time, the grass and terrain would grow over. And so this is how sin patterns are in our minds. The more you commit a sin, the more you are wearing a neuropathway. You're wearing a path. And so you are naturally prone to be given to a sin that the more you do it. The less you commit a sin, the less prone you are, and you can get to a point where that path, kind of the natural landscape, grows over it. And it becomes distant to you. And you don't do it anymore. You don't think about it anymore, but you have to war against it. <clears throat> and so this is this kind of fine balance that Paul is talking about. We are loved and declared righteous by God on account of Jesus Christ, and at the same time, we have to pursue life in the Spirit because the Spirit is at work in us. But it's not automatic. We participate in that life. We participate in the life that the Spirit is trying to accomplish in us. So again, here's this double grace. I know I kind of sound like a broken record here, but it's first to be made right with God and second to live right before God. And the second always follows the first. You know, there's zero irony in the idea that even though we're completely loved and accepted by God on account of Christ, he still commands us to live lives pleasing to him. It's interesting. He doesn't command sinners to live lives pleasing to him because they can't. But he commands us who are loved and accepted to live, therefore, go and live lives that please me. That's essentially what God is saying. In verses seven and eight, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's, it's, a, it's a travesty when Christians have 
followed their, the appetites of the flesh so much that you cannot tell the difference between them and unbelievers. And, and that happens sometimes. Maybe that's happened to you. May, maybe you have found yourself where you yourself don't even know, what is the difference between me and you know, my unbelieving neighbor? I seem to do the same thing they do. And this is where we're called to join the fight. This is where we're called not to sit back passively, but to actively join the fight against the lusts of the flesh. Now, why does Paul say this? Because he doesn't want anyone to think that in the flesh they enjoy sinless perfection. Uh, One of the statements in Latin that grew out of the Reformation, Latin was the language of the academy for Luther and Calvin. This one came from Luther. It was... um, um, Simul justus et peccator, which is Latin for simultaneously justified and simultaneously a sinner. And so we are justified in the sight of God, and at the same time we're sinners, constantly warring against the flesh. But on the other hand, and, and this is, I'm going to wrap it up here with verses 9 through 11. But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, which means if you're living in a way that is according to the flesh, you have no business doing that because you're not of the flesh. You are not someone who lives your life dictated by that regulating principle of sin any longer, which is the dominion of the flesh. He says, in fact, if the spirit of God dwells in you, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. For anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So be encouraged, because the resurrection of Jesus not only means that Christ our Lord has, is risen and lives, but it means that God is giving you life at this very moment and will raise your mortal bodies when you die also. So walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this, your holy word, as you, Lord, have admonished us with this indicative of grace and imperative of obedience, that we stand no longer condemned. We've been empowered and filled with your spirit to pursue a life of righteousness. Help us now, we pray, to pursue a life of righteousness in the spirit. No longer condemned by the flesh, Lord, we pray that we would have a sense of confidence and not fear to live before you and to know that even when we fail, even when we fall, even when we falter, Your love keeps us safe and secure in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins and defeated and condemned sin in his own flesh on our behalf. We thank you now in Christ's name, amen.